Section 34 of Four and Twenty Fairy Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Whisk. Princess Lionette and Prince Cucricou by Mademoiselle de Lebert. Translated by James Planchet. Part 2. To cultivate a fine disposition spoiled by so wicked an education, the fairy was impelled by another feeling less generous and more natural. The beauty of this prince had touched her heart. She imagined that gratitude would make some impression upon that of the young Concricu. The few charms she possessed, however, were not likely to do so. She was old and had a horn in the middle of her forehead, but she was very susceptible and was always complaining that she had met with none but ungrateful beings. "'By bringing up this young man,' she thought, "'he will become accustomed to my appearance, and perhaps my care and affection for him will inspire him with sentiments that may lead, in time, to that happy union of souls, that perfect mutual love which I have heard so much of and never experienced.' Cornu, that was her name, reason thus in transporting the handsome prince to her dwelling, which was in the desert where the old man and his wife had brought up the young Leonette for the last four years. Cornu had built herself a charming palace upon the summit of one of the mountains, but it was inaccessible to all human beings, in consequence of the clouds which it was continually surrounded. The charms of life, its amusements, both rational and frivolous, were all united there. This palace was of immense extent, although formed of one single opal so transparent and so beautiful that through the walls one might see a grain of millet at the end of the garden, which was worthy of so magnificent a palace from its groves, terraces, parterres, and fountains. The tasteful Cornu had not spared anything, even in her dress, for when placing the prince in the vestibule of her palace, she made herself visible to him. She had enveloped her horn in a green velvet case covered with diamonds. Her hair, which was rather gray, was powdered white and tied with green moulinet bows, in the center of each of which sparkled a large diamond, and her dress, of flesh color and silver, showed her form so truly that one could perceive the graces had given among themselves which should give the finishing touch to it. The prince was surprised at this apparition she kissed his hand and asked his forgiveness for taking him away from his retirement without permission if i can avoid being your king said he with an air which showed that he was not alarmed at the manner in which he had been conducted thither i should be very well contented for the fear of ascending the throne made me desirous of leaving my kingdom and you have done me a favour in taking me away from it but i should like to know he added quickly why you wear so pointed a headdress and why your dress is of so peculiar a colour we excuse such childish questions at your age said the fairy slightly blushing you will be ashamed of them some day but let us enter the palace and you will find something to occupy your attention more agreeably she then gave him her hand and they passed into a saloon in keeping with the beauty of the rest of the palace a hundred black slaves were arranged in two files through which the prince and the fairy proceeded to the centre it was sufficiently light to see the rarities which ornamented this beautiful place statues sculptured marbles porcelain furniture were all admired with the taste of a connoisseur by the young prince 
the slave opened the door of a magnificent gallery filled with charts maps of the world instruments of geometry models of the most beautiful cities in asia europe and africa of palaces where the men and women of each nation were dressed in their national costumes and by the fairy skill they moved hither and thither spoke in their own languages and held conversations according to their position this amused the prince for a considerable time he requested the fairy to allow him to remain in that gallery a little longer than she seemed inclined to do he made the slaves who accompanied him explain what this all meant he bade them repeat it and was quite enchanted he recognized the fortunate islands he saw his tutors seeking for him and who appeared in despair at not finding him that touched his heart with pity the fairy at length withdrew him from the scene that he might not witness the catastrophe she amused him with other objects some islands surrounded the sea upon another model afforded him great entertainment vessels filled with passengers executed some wonderful evolutions then there was a sea fight followed by a storm which dispersed the ships and sank several of them this terminated the diversions of this day the fairy then proposed supper after which an opera was represented this was succeeded by a ball and the prince danced with the fairy and with the nymphs in the fairy's train and at last six slaves conducted him to a handsome apartment in which he retired to rest the next and following days were passed in conversations sometimes serious sometimes mirthful the slaves had orders to cultivate his taste for the arts while amusing him to which purpose he lent himself readily he was already accustomed to walk in the second gallery which formed a superb arsenal he heard them talk of arms and of war with pleasure he almost wished to witness a battle and felt ashamed that he had ever thought otherwise the slaves formed themselves into battalions he placed himself at their head he enjoyed his triumph in a sham fight he invented stratagems he sought for glory everywhere he no longer feared to be king the gallery of models had displayed to him the pleasures of royalty he passed three hours each day in it and took lessons from the ablest politicians the cabinet secrets of all the courts in the universe were no secrets to him there was a model of the whole globe in that gallery and what art pervaded that grand work not only all the kingdoms in their various provinces to the smallest habitation were represented but every mortal upon the face of the earth was seen in pursuit of his vocation all spoke their own language you heard them you saw them the most secret actions were displayed therein the ocean and its vessels rivers lakes streamlets deserts and even undiscovered countries nothing was hidden from the learned cornu all was to be found in her model there was wherewithal to amuse one during the longest life that ever was known the prince was fascinated by this wonderful work of art he studied it for a long time he could with difficulty tear himself from it nor did he consent to do so till the fairy assured him that this gallery forming a portion of his suite of apartments he might visit it whenever he wished he left it at length to enjoy new pleasures an opera a supper followed by a magnificent ball in which the fairies of cornu's court distinguished themselves in dancing notwithstanding they were ugly and old for their mistress took care not to incur the reproach of being the least handsome person in the palace and the design she had upon the heart of the young prince would not admit of her neglecting anything that would bring them to bear his education was entrusted to six fairies who led him each morning into the gallery of the globe for three hours they explained the various interests of princes 
he learned their languages he heard and saw the effect of their politics their battles by land and sea which displayed to him the ability of ministers and of generals already he was able to form sound opinions and to speak of things with the knowledge acquired from experience his noble mind developed itself he burned with a desire for glory he blushed at having been afraid of it he also appreciated the pleasures of royalty he began to find a satisfaction in being master but he did not at all covet the soft and effeminate life which he perceived in the seraglio of the sovereigns of persia or constantinople he preferred those kings who reigned absolutely over their subjects with a certainty that they would shed their blood to preserve theirs insensibly he became the most accomplished prince living he was not ignorant upon any point his fine intellect assisting his slight experience he evinced in everything the greatest judgment and discernment but where can one see this land and the inhabitants that i observe in my model said he sometimes to cornu i will show you some day answered she it is not time yet that would vex him he was desirous of appearing to some consequence himself in this fine plan of the universe he was annoyed at not seeing himself in it this caused him many reflections but as they only sprang from his brain they did not distress him much though suggested by the heart more interesting he knew nothing of yet the fairy did not fear that the beauties whom he saw in the model would awaken him any emotions contrary to her wishes they were so exceedingly small that he could but take them for pretty little puppets the largest figure of a man even not being taller than one's thumb his great amusement was the opera and comedy he went to them very often the little figures acted wonderfully well and he had a great appreciation of genius he attended all orations of the academy and commented upon them with great sagacity until he was eighteen years old this gallery continued to be his greatest pleasure in fact he knew no other at that age he began to wish to know the people whose portraits he saw the fairy desirous to please him dared not oppose him too much she put him off with promises but feared he would escape her i hunt in your park he said i walk in it i always see the same things it tires me i should like something to see something different ah uh, truly said the fairy you have well preserved the faults of humankind miserable state of men can they be perfectly happy they cannot believe themselves to be so they sigh for what they do not possess and when they have obtained it they are disgusted with it ah what have you to wish for there do you not reign here are you not the master do you fear treachery here false friends or bad advisers we live but to please you you are all-powerful in this palace you command we obey you what being could be grander and happier than you are the prince bent his head at the enumeration of all the happiness the fairy had surrounded him with and found that he still desired more he said nothing but his uneasiness his agitation his weariness appeared in spite of him in all his actions cornu increased the magnificence of her dress the prince did not notice it he scarcely ever looked at her she was disconsolate for the idea entertained ever since she had carried him off the hope of being ardently loved by him had strengthened with time and the prince's increasing beauty had contributed much to her passion he was just at that happy age in which we please without much trouble and love with that frankness which is so soon disregarded 
Cornu was enraged that he did not think of her. "'You ought to love me were it only to amuse you,' she said to him one day when she was very melancholy. "'Love you?' replied he, looking very vacantly at her. "'Do I not love you?' Then, without thinking of it, he added immediately, "'I feel certain I shall never love.' "'Ah, oh, why?' said the fairy. "'Who prevents you?' "'Nobody,' he replied, then rose and took a gun and went shooting for the rest of the day. The fairy, in despair at his indifference, and fearing she should lose him if she still persisted in opposing him, perceived also that he was thinner and that his color had faded, determined to allow him to change the scene, and for this reason one morning she sent for him. "'The time has arrived,' she said, "'that I can give you your liberty to leave the palace. You will find the vast universe of which I am about to open the roads to you resemble a very stormy ocean.' but since you wish to expose yourself to it, I will not detain you. All I advise you to do is to confide in me when in trouble, for you will have much to endure before you become king, and to commence your excursions by going to my sister Tigreline, and asking her from me for the wonderful necklace which can alone preserve you from the misfortune attached to your fate. Take this bottle, pour a drop of the spirit it contains upon the clouds which surround the park, they will open for you to pass, and this dog will guide you on your way back to the palace. The prince, who did not expect so great a favor, displayed such transports of gratitude that the fairy felt nearly recompensed for her trouble by the caresses she received from him. He promised to follow her advice upon every point, and set out immediately. The boundaries of the park adjoined a force so wild and frightful that Konkriku found the world was not quite so beautiful as he imagined it to be. Notwithstanding, he entered this vast wilderness, accompanied solely by his dog. Guided by his faithful companion, he was pursuing a path which led to the forest of tigers, when suddenly he saw a lion of extraordinary size coming straight toward him. At first he was startled at such a meeting, never having seen a lion in Cornu's park. But recovering himself a little, he shot an arrow with so true an aim that it pierced the lion's heart, and he fell dead at his feet. He proceeded as fast as possible, but his attention was arrested a moment afterwards by a frightful roarings. He looked in the direction from whence they came, and he saw in the distance another lion running at full speed with a young child on its back. He was about to pursue it, but his dog pulled him by the coat so hard that he thought the fairy Cornu had appointed this dog to be his guardian. And so... Giving himself up to his guidance, he arrived at Tigreline's abode without further incident. As soon as he had told her the reason for his journey, she replied, Prince Kokriku, you will inform my sister that I have disposed of the necklace that she asked me for. Doubtless it was for you she wanted it. I hope, however, that it will not fall into your hands so soon, whatever advantage you might desire from it. But to make up for the loss of this gift, which I am no longer able to bestow, I warn you that if you ever pronounce your name rashly, or without its being absolutely necessary, you will lose, perhaps forever, that which is most dear to you. I advise you, therefore, to conceal your name from every one, or at least not to mention it lightly. Go, Prince, I can do nothing more for you. The prince thanked the fairy very much, kissed her hand, retired, and returned to Cornu's palace, very well satisfied with the little he had seen. He was received most graciously, 
They asked him many questions. He related all his adventures. He fancied he should never have finished talking about them. Everything had seemed of such singular beauty to him. He was in high spirits all the evening. They praised him, they caressed him, but that did not content him. He was resolved to go out again, and the fairy, perceiving how good-tempered he was, permitted him to do as he wished. For a whole year he roamed to the furthest extent of the beautiful country in the neighborhood. Sometimes he went on horseback, and often dismounted to sleep under the trees during the heat of the day. This sort of exercise increased his stature and his strength. He was now in the prime of his beauty. He was very anxious to ask the fairy to restore him to his subjects. He was tired of his life of privation. His mind, as fine as his person, made him anxious to revisit his kingdom. But he dared not as yet request Cornu's permission, lest he should appear ungrateful. This brought back his former melancholy. Cornu became alarmed. She endeavored to amuse him in every imaginable way. He scarcely ever went out. He passed his days almost entirely in the gallery of models, and when he saw a battle he could not be got away from it. What was still worse, he one day witnessed the coronation of a young king. At this sight they thought he would go mad. The shouts of joy, the warlike instruments, the pomp of the ceremony, transported him with anger as well as with delight. "'Why, then,' said he, "'am I to be imprisoned here during my youth when I could be at the head of these people, making either war on peace, enjoying really my rights of birth? They would detain me here, a captive, render me as effeminate as Achilles at the court of Lycomedia? Can I not find a Ulysses who will come to my rescue?' He would have given still greater vent to his vexation had they not come to announce to him that the fairy was waiting for him to order them to begin an opera she had commanded the performance of. "'What always some fete?' said he. "'Well,' he continued, "'I must submit to it.' The opera they were to perform was Armide. The fairy, who had been told what an ill humor the prince was in, watched him during the performance. She thought that he seemed amused by it, for he was so attentive to the piece. The fourth and fifth acts he certainly did think wonderful. He spoke of it the whole evening. He admired above everything the idea of the shield which restored the hero to glory. "'What?' said the fairy. "'Does not Armida interest you at all? Do you not pity her? So much affection deserves a better recompense.' "'By my faith, madame,' replied the prince, "'your Armida has what she deserves. I should like to know if the heart is to be commanded.' I believe it to be perfectly independent of the will, as far as I am concerned. Cornu felt the cruelty of this answer, but she did not appear to do so, and turned the conversation to another subject. The prince retired early that he might go the next day shooting. This was the day that his hand was wounded by the beautiful Leonette's arrow. Upon returning to the fairy's palace, the prince considered whether he should speak of this adventure. He was astonished at himself for wishing to keep it a secret. A sweet feeling, hitherto unknown to him, stole over his mind, and took such possession of it, that he was unable to conceal it. He asked himself what it could mean, and he could find no reason for it. The name of Leonette enchanted him. He repeated it incessantly. The grace, the beauty of this young girl enchanted him, and he found himself within the palace without being aware how he had arrived there. It was then he began to recover himself a little. Under the effect of this intoxicating feeling, he said a thousand gallant things to the fairy. 
She was surprised at it, but flattering herself that her charms had produced this altercation, she did not inquire the reason of such extraordinary joy. His wound made her uneasy, but he took care to tell her that he had hurt himself with one of his own arrows, and the enamoured Cornu, anxious about everything that concerned him, cured it by breathing upon it. He was in charming spirits for the rest of the day. Cornu thought he had lost his senses. She ordered some music that he thought delightful, although he had heard the same every day without noticing it. So much does love embellish the slightest objects. His passion led him to indulge in delicious meditations, and to discover in his heart the existence of emotions he had never dreamed of. He retired early and hastened to the gallery, seeking for a representation of her whom he had seen during the day. He was successful in his search. He saw the lovely Leonette seated between the old people in the cavern, and when on separating for the night, they extinguished the light, and she was in darkness. He still remained gazing in the direction of the cavern, and did not leave the gallery until the following morning was sufficiently advanced for him to go and meet the lovely huntress herself. In traversing the forest he lost himself, and that was the cause of being so long before he rejoined his beautiful Leonette. Unfortunately for the fairy, her skill was now useless to her. From the moment fairies fall in love, their art cannot protect them. When they recover their reason, they regain their power. But in the interim they can neither punish their rivals nor discover them, unless chance assists them, as it might common mortals. Three months elapsed without her having an idea of the cause of the change in Prince Kukriku. She heard no more of his ambitious aspirations. A country life and retirement was all he now desired. He dressed himself as a shepherd. He composed eclogues and madrigals. He engraved them upon the trees in the park, accompanied by gallant and amorous devices that the fairy could not understand. When she asked him for an explanation— he smiled and told her it was not for him to instruct so learned a person as she was. "'Ask your own heart, madame,' added he. "'That will teach you. It was mine that dictated it all to me.' The fairy was quite contented with this answer. She interpreted it according to her own wishes, but she could not reconcile to herself the prince's frequent absence. After all he had said to her, for he went out the first thing in the morning and did not return till the last thing at night. She passed whole days in thinking about new dresses and different entertainments. As she had a lively imagination, she succeeded with the later, but the former were absolutely useless. Her age and her horn entirely defeated all attempts at decoration. It was upon this occasion that she invented the bal masque, which have been ever since so successful. The prince often indulged in this agreeable delusion, and with his heart full of the beautiful Leonette, he spoke to the fairy as though he were addressing his love, and the credulous Cornu took it all to herself. Towards the end of the third month of this intense and secret passion, the prince at length resolved to ask the fairy to conduct him to his own kingdom. It was not ambition that induced him to wish it, but a higher and more delicate sentiment. Why conceal it? Love itself made him anxious to ascend the throne, that he might place the beautiful Leonette on it beside him. He had scarcely spoken to the fairy about it before she consented, flattering herself that he wished to share his crown with her. With what pleasure did she order everything for his departure? The prince, as we know, took leave of his lovely shepherdess and set out with the fairy on a numerous suite for the kingdom of the fortunate isles. 
Cornu was seated with him in a car of rock crystal drawn by a dozen unicorns. Their harness was of gold and rubies as brilliant as the sun. A dozen other chariots as pompous followed, and the prince, as beautiful as Cupid and magnificently dressed, attracted the attention of everyone. He had most carefully concealed the necklace that the lovely Lionette had given him. He wore it on his left arm as a bracelet, and his dress covered it. He was delighted at the thought of appearing before Lionette in such grand apparel, and to read in her looks the joy such proof of his love would give her. But he could not help feeling a secret anxiety, which at times cast a cloud over his mind. He attributed it to the distance between him and his love, and sometimes he thought he had done wrong in going so far away from her. "'The happiness I am seeking, is it worth what I lose?' he said. "'Leonette loves me as she has seen me. Will she love me more for possessing a crown? Ah, Leonette, I know you too well to wrong you so much. Your noble and simple heart only estimates that true grandeur which places man above his fellows by the elevation of his mind. At length he arrived at the Fortunate Isles, and the people, delighted to see their prince again, received him with acclamations. He was crowned, and by the attentions of the enamoured Cornu, the ceremony was followed by magnificent fetes. The ceremony was followed by magnificent fetes, in which the prince, from gratitude, insisted on her sharing all the honors. The fetes ended, and the affairs of this fine kingdom, put in order by the fairy and the minister she had chosen, she determined to have a complete explanation with the king, and began by adroitly proposing that he should marry. She had gained the ministers over to her wishes, and induced them to join in the proposition she had made him. But who can tell Cornu's astonishment when the young prince replied by acknowledging his love for the beautiful Lionette, and entreating her to assist in rendering him happy by enabling him to share his throne with the object of his affections? "'Ah, where have you seen this Lionette?' replied the fairy with a look in which astonishment, rage, and vexation were equally visible. "'What, then,' added she, "'is this the return for my care for you?' The prince, astonished at this sharp reply and not fearing her reproaches, ended by relating his interview with Leonette, and painted his affection in such glowing colors that she plainly saw the opposition she might make against it would only tend to irritate him and increase his passion. Then cleverly making her decision, "'I would not speak thus to you,' said she, "'but to reproach you for your want of confidence, that you did not open your heart to me.' I should have served you better, and Leonette would have been to-day queen of the Fortunate Isles. But you have acted like a young man without experience, and I doubt if I can serve you at present as I could otherwise have done. Ah, madame, replied the king, you can, if you will, give me your chariot and let me go and seek my beautiful Leonette. I will do better for you, said she with a forced smile. I will go with you as soon as it strikes midnight. Hold yourself in readiness. We shall be on our way, back before the sun is up, and I know no other means of satisfying your impatience. The prince embraced the fairy's knees, transported with joy and gratitude, which wounded her much more than his unfortunate confidence. She took leave of him under a pretext of consulting her books, but really because she couldn't contain herself, and her fury had risen to a most horrible height. Who could describe it? All that an amorous, jealous, and mistaken woman could feel, she as a fairy felt still more. 
nor could the most forcible language paint but feebly the tortures which racked her heart she had promised however to accompany the prince but that would enable her to execute the vengeance she mediated she felt the more assured of her revenge as the prince had let the necklace fall from his arm and had left her without being aware of his loss she picked it up and thanking the stars for so lucky an accident no longer delayed taking measures for her revenge which would have been useless without that precious necklace she closed the doors of her apartment that her absence might not be perceived and desired the king might be told she must consult her books in private and at midnight she would be visible she mounted a flying dragon and speedily arrived in the cavern where everything was in profound repose the dragon sneezed which was a clap of thunder and enough to rend the cavern she accomplished as we have already seen her wicked intentions and returned to the fortunate isles as the clock struck eleven she could hardly restrain her delight while waiting for the king but soon the idea of being in love and without doubt loved in return renewed her fury she was in a transport of rage when he entered her room with an eagerness which assisted not a little to increase it she endeavored to calm herself or rather to dissemble her rage her fury was at such a height that her horn was in a flame, and the enamoured and too credulous Konkriku, thinking it was an attention she was paying him to guide him in the darkness of the night, thanked her a thousand times for this precaution. They mounted a chariot drawn by three owls, set off at full speed, and descended in the forest close to the cavern, wherein Leonette had been reared. The prince only knew it from Leonette's description of it love invests with interest the most trifling circumstances connected with its objects he had often asked her to describe the place she inhabited he remembered every little detail distinctly he could not be deceived besides he knew her bow and arrow that were in the cabinet in which she slept his grief was excessive at not finding her he called her he went in and out of the cavern a thousand and a thousand times he entreated the fairy to follow a light from her horn upon places that were obscure and seeing some little pictures she had painted ah this is her work cried he i will preserve them all my life the fairy was so irritated at his transports that she threw out a flame from her horn which in a moment destroyed everything that was in the cavern the prince had great difficulty to save himself from this conflagration the fairy protected him however and triumphed within herself at the absence of her rival she advised the prince to seek for her elsewhere perhaps said she her parents have married her or perhaps she continued ironically grief at your loss has caused her death i know not what has happened said the prince in a tone which marked the agitation of his mind and distracted at not being able to find his mistress but i would rather believe her to be dead than unfaithful and if it be true that she exists no longer very soon i shall follow her to the grave here is a furious determination of a lover cried the fairy but considering that under the circumstances it would be better not to irritate the king she changed her tone what i have said pursued she is to prove the interest i take in you i am sorry you should have conceived an affection for a person of such low extraction and i cannot sufficiently thank fate that in accordance with my own opinion has removed the shepherdess and thus assisted your heart to recover from its error i know not if fate has assisted you to drive me mad 
replied the prince sharply but if so i feel she has been more successful in that attempt than the other as to leonette i will repair the deficit if it be one to be born of obscure parents not that i believe it possible for her to be what she appears in any case however happy are the princesses who are high-minded as she is the prince now seeing how uselessly he was seeking for her in this place entered the chariot again with the fairy and returned to the fortunate isles where they arrived at sunset without having spoken a single word both of them occupied one by her fury the other by his grief the king upon his return shut himself up in his palace and thought of nothing but by what steps he might recover leonette it occurred to him that he ought to go to tigreline this this resolution taken he proceeded to cornu to tell her his project i cannot imagine said he to her why you do not assist me in this affair is your power so limited is tigreline's more extensive than yours for i believe he added instantly you are so interested in my happiness that you would exert all the skill you possess to increase it if it were possible i could not even doubt it without being ungrateful i have had sufficient proofs to be quite sure of it and i feel that i can never forget them cornu blushed at this question which she did not expect and becoming acquainted with the extent of her misfortune by the later part of the king's discourse it is in consequence of that very affection i have for you said she as you ought to know that i will not serve you in fostering a passion that would diminish your glory and if you are as grateful as you say you are for the care i have taken to make you happy and for preserving your life you will discard an infatuation which will be your ruin what an idea will your people will the whole universe have of a king so little master of himself that he runs after a poor shepherdess to give her a crown which he might share with the first princesses in the world no matter whom perhaps even a fairy might not have disdained to partake of one with you these last words which escaped her in spite of herself opened the king's eyes and looking at the fairy with astonishment he was convinced of the truth of his suspicions when he saw her standing silent confused and carefully avoiding his gaze these last words which escaped her in spite of herself opened the king's eyes and looking at the fairy with astonishment he was convinced of the truth of his suspicions when he saw her standing silent confused and carefully avoiding his gaze end of section 34 recording by jennifer whisk